This episode is sponsored by our Pantheon patron, Iso, whose brother Mercer has composed the song you're listening to right now. Sit back and enjoy, because after, we'll be discussing Full Throttle. everyone and welcome to classic gaming today where we take a look at the gaming experiences of the past through the eyes of the present i'm your host tony and today we're going to look at full throttle a point and click adventure title developed and published by lucas arts in 1995 for the microsoft dos and mac os computer platforms we're going to talk about that game in just a couple minutes but first as is usual just a little bit of housekeeping up front this is episode number 64, and it is a special episode because it is a Pantheon patron-sponsored episode. ISO is sponsoring our deep dive into Full Throttle. Thank you, ISO, for your sponsorship and support. ISO sent me a sponsorship message, which he would like me to read. It says, ISO would like to dedicate this episode to Knuckle and Spammy McNades, his brothers, who made him the point-and-clicker he is today. 
Now you both have your own diaper dynamos here and on the way. Be sure to impart the history and love for classic games onto them. He hopes you both enjoy this episode and know that you can modify your bike enough to overcome every challenge in your way. Love, ISO. Thank you, ISO. That was a very heartfelt message. Thank you for your sponsorship. And thank you for choosing the game of the day, Full Throttle. If you would like to sponsor an episode or get in touch with me in general, there are a few ways you can do that. I do have an X account with the handle at ClassicGamingT. I also have an email address, which is ClassicGamingToday at gmail.com. And I have a Discord server. The link is in the show notes. Discord is the best way to get in touch with me and the rest of the community around this podcast. We have a ton of fun out on Discord, including our weekly gaming challenge. This past weekend was all about celebrating the NES 8-bit console, and after the weekend, ISO remains in first place with 292 points, followed by Bookie Gnu in second place with 147 points. I'm still in third place with 99 points. Rich Sanewald comes in fourth at 87 points. Left-handed guitarist says 35 points for fifth place. I Am The Dizzle is in sixth place with 24 points. And Public Self is in seventh place with 13 points. We've also started our December monthly challenge. That is going to be a series of competitive challenges. The top prize at the end of the month is going to get 100 points. Everybody else gets literally nothing. It is pure competition. If that sounds like fun, I highly encourage you to go check out our Discord. I should also mention that we have a Patreon. It is patreon.com slash classic gaming today. So if you want even more classic gaming today goodness, patreon.com slash classic gaming today is where it's at. You receive a bi-weekly Patreon exclusive podcast. And if you are a Pantheon member, you can sponsor your own episodes just like ISO did today. So if that sounds like a good time, patreon.com slash classic gaming today is the spot to do it. I also want to give a shout out to our current Pantheon members. They are ISO, Rich Senewal, David Morton, and Sam Twardowski. Thank you guys for supporting the show. Thank you all for supporting the show. Whether you contribute monetarily or simply listen on a regular basis, I truly do appreciate all of the support. For anyone who may be new, welcome. I just want to give a brief overview of the anatomy of episode because, for the most part, all of our episodes follow a very similar format and structure. We will always start by talking about the history of the game in question, the historical context. How was the game made? Why was the game made? And then we move into a pseudo-review kind of section. And I say pseudo-review because it's not like we assign numerical rankings or star counts or anything like that. But we do talk about every single game from several different perspectives. We take a look at the graphics. How does the game look? The sound and music. How does the game sound? The narrative and or story, if the game has one. Playability and controls and overall feel. What does it feel like to play the game today versus when it was released 20, 30, maybe even 40 plus years ago? We do all of that to reach a verdict as far as how well the game holds up today. And to do that, we assign each game to one of several categories. At the very top of our list is the Pantheon of Classic Gaming. If a game reaches the Pantheon, you know it is that darn good. It is a certifiable classic. You owe it to yourself to go out and play that game today. Just beyond the Pantheon are our Golden Oldies. These are still really good games. I still highly recommend them, especially if you enjoy the genre in which the game lives. By all means, give it a go. You will have a good time. They're not quite Pantheon level, but they are still really good experiences, and I still highly recommend you try them today. 
Beyond the golden oldies, we reach our mediocre mentions. This is where we start getting into the realm of games that I cannot recommend to the broader population. They may have aged a little bit, might have had a couple of issues to begin with. You may still have a good time, especially if you enjoy the genre in which the game lives. But for the most part, I cannot recommend these games to the general population. And then beyond the mediocre mentions, we reach the footnotes. These are the games that are best left in the annals of history. I have played them, so you don't have to. I cannot recommend anyone play these titles today. They have either aged incredibly poorly, or they may not have been all that great to begin with. With that out of the way, we're going to start talking about the game of the day. That is Full Throttle. Full Throttle is a third-person point-and-click adventure title developed and published by LucasArts in 1995 for the Microsoft DOS and Mac OS computer platforms. Before we can talk about Full Throttle, we do have to briefly discuss LucasArts and just a little bit about the history of the company. Those of you who have been listening for a while will likely recognize that we've covered a good chunk of LucasArts adventure titles previously, so if anyone is interested in deep dives into such classics as The Secret of Monkey Island, Indiana Jones and the Fate of Atlantis, Maniac Mansion, Day of the Tentacle, and The Dig, I encourage you to check out the specific episodes focusing on those titles. Now, my intent here is not to recap everything about LucasArts that we've discussed previously, but just to provide a high-level overview. LucasArts, or as it used to be known at its inception, Lucasfilm Games, was one of the most prominent adventure game publishers and developers of the late 80s and 90s, often going head-to-head with their main competitor, Sierra Online, for the adventure game crown. Each company had their own distinct style, with Sierra generally focusing on more realistic, sometimes even mature, gaming experiences, while LucasArts typically focused more on comedic and often zany situations. Each company had their ardent fans, and I know even from a personal perspective, the divide in our family between my brother, who was a LucasArts faithful, and myself, who tended to prefer Sierra titles, caused a number of debates over the years. Arguably, the biggest release of the early Lucasfilm Games adventure era came with the creation of Maniac Mansion in 1987. Designed by adventure game legends Ron Gilbert and Gary Winnick, Maniac Mansion would represent a pivotal shift in how Lucasfilm would develop and design adventure games, as it would result in the creation of the SCUM engine. SCUM, which stands for Script Creation Utility for Maniac Mansion, provided a way for Lucasfilm designers to bridge the gap between the traditional text-based parsers that were prevalent in adventure titles up to this point and a more graphical representation of adventure gameplay. Rather than needing to guess what commands a computer would recognize, the SCUM engine made those inputs explicit, displaying a series of verbs on the screen that players could select between and combine with objects and hotspots in the game world, as well as inventory items, to create commands that the computer would execute. This design paradigm and engine would become synonymous with Lucasfilm and eventually LucasArts adventure titles from 1987 on and would, in the process, influence countless other adventure game developers over the years. The team at LucasArts would continue to mature and develop as well, 
with Ron Gilbert becoming effectively the lead of a team of designers who, under his tutelage, would become adventure game legends in their own right. With Ron Gilbert's departure in 1992 to start his own company, Humongous Entertainment, there was significant opportunity for Gilbert's acolytes to step up and become the next generation of rock star adventure game designers at LucasArts. And a couple of those designers in particular would take that opportunity and run with it. So, let's rejoin LucasArts circa 1993, which had just seen the release of the classic adventure game Day of the Tentacle. Recall that Day of the Tentacle was a co-led effort between two of Ron Gilbert's former teammates, Tim Schafer and Dave Grossman. Following the release of that title, LucasArts began thinking about what their next major adventure game was going to be, and they turned to the dynamic duo of Schaefer and Grossman to pitch some ideas. The first round of concepts were pretty much what you would expect given the pedigree of the duo, with ideas for a third entry in the Maniac Mansion series and a third Monkey Island game proposed as potential next games. Schaefer, however, considered that he might want to try leading an effort by himself, breaking away from the natural collaboration that he had with Grossman to jump into the unknown and uncertain area of solo adventure game development. Now, I say solo, but truly, he did have a team behind him. But anyway, he wanted to be the lead designer on his own effort. So Schaefer developed his own pitch, and it consisted of three ideas. A spy game, which, to the best of my knowledge, never came to fruition. A game about the Spanish Day of the Dead, or Dia de los Muertos. And a game about bikers and biker culture. So, Schaefer pitched those ideas to LucasArts management, and unfortunately, didn't get much support. In his words, the leadership at LucasArts hated his ideas, but Schaefer was not deterred. He went back to the drawing board and, deciding that his biker game concept had the most potential mass appeal, refined the concept before coming back to management and pitching his revised idea. Luckily for Schaefer, the LucasArts leadership team gave him the green light to proceed, and that was a decision that was based primarily on Schaefer's confidence and assertion that the game would become a huge hit for the company. Now, before we continue, let's take a step back to talk about the commercial viability of LucasArts adventure titles in the early 90s. Undeniably, LucasArts was one of the behemoths of the adventure game genre, and nearly every one of their releases was adored by the adventure game community and are today considered absolute classic gaming experiences. But things weren't all that rosy from a commercial standpoint back in the early 90s. In fact, Many of the games that are widely considered to be some of the best adventure games ever made, like the Monkey Island series and the previously mentioned Day of the Tentacle, were not all that successful in the marketplace. It's not entirely clear why that is, but I do have some theories, all of which are centered on the defining characteristics of what makes an adventure game an adventure game. From my perspective, an adventure game is the intersection of three core pillars, those being story and narrative, setting and characters, and puzzles. The best adventure games often have amazing stories with top-flight writing, but they also often have pretty devilish puzzles that, for true adventure game aficionados, are a delight to try to solve. The core adventure game demographic is someone who doesn't mind struggling to solve a particularly difficult puzzle, providing the solution is logical, or at least consistent, with the particular game's world and framework. Unfortunately for many adventure game developers, that demographic is pretty small relative to a number of other genres in gaming. Even back when adventure games were at their zenith, a superb adventure game would sell modestly, often failing to break the 100,000 sale threshold. 
There were, of course, exceptions to that rule, but the runaway commercially successful adventure titles were those that appealed to a broader demographic than the typical adventure game player. The perfect example here was Myst, which sold as well as it did because of its advanced graphics capabilities and the fact that it showcased the new CD-ROM technology, more so than for its stature as an adventure game. Another prime example here is LucasArts' own Indiana Jones and the Fate of Atlantis, which would sell over 1 million copies over its lifetime. That game was bolstered by the fact that it was an Indiana Jones adventure, which was and is a film and media property with a number of fans and a significant amount of crossover appeal amongst a variety of demographic groups. Otherwise, though, within LucasArts, most adventure titles released in the early 90s sat very comfortably at the 100,000 units sold mark, but they always wanted to expand that number. Schaefer insisted, at the time of his pitch, that his biker game would dramatically exceed those expectations. He thought that the setting, characters, and story would be much more commercially viable than prior LucasArts titles, which up to this point appealed to the niche adventure game market. With his forthcoming biker game, Schaefer saw an experience that could potentially transcend that niche, with the hopes of the game being embraced by the more general computer game-playing population. It was certainly a bold pitch for someone who had never led the development of a game by himself, but he was given the opportunity to move forward with his idea. And of course, this idea is what would eventually become Full Throttle. The synthesis of the core concept of the game came from the mythos surrounding biker culture, which according to Schaefer, shared a lot of cultural similarities with pirates, which, as you guys know, Schaefer had a bit of experience with, having worked on the first two Monkey Island games. His assertion was that both of these cultures have their own rules, but are not really something that most people can experience for themselves. In that way, they represent a form of escapist fantasy, in that people might secretly want to be a pirate or a biker, but it's something that most people will only be able to experience within the confines of a game, whether computer, live-action roleplay, or something similar. Schaefer was banking on the belief that people in general wanted to take on the role of a biker, a kind of lone wolf, gruff, cool hero who kicks butt and takes names, which lends credence to his belief that this would be a more popular product than other adventure titles. To make the game happen, though, and to make it a success beyond the traditional adventure game community, LucasArts would have to make some fairly dramatic changes to the typical adventure game formula that they had been known for. For one, most LucasArts adventures up to this point had been cartoonish in nature, often with goofy and whimsical situations that were funny, but decidedly not mature, and certainly not mature enough to convey a sophisticated biker-themed story. While I'd argue that the graphical style of a game like Day of the Tentacle, with its Chuck Jones-inspired cartoon imagery, is both charming and nostalgic, not everyone felt the same way, often believing that such games were more for kids than discerning adults. Full Throttle would represent a departure from the less mature style of adventure gaming LucasArts was known for. It wouldn't do away with cartoon imagery, nor would it do away with comical puzzles and situations, but it would introduce an art style that was decidedly more adult-looking, with most of the inspiration coming from the popular Hellboy comics created by Mike Mignola. In Schaefer's words, the goal was to do cartoons, but for adults. That general artistic style was applied to the entirety of the game world, which consisted of seemingly desolate locations, long, winding desert roads, biker bars, junkyards, and demolition derby stadiums. A number of people felt as though the game setting was almost post-apocalyptic, but that wasn't really the intent of Schaefer or the design team. Instead, 
The goal was to create the feeling of being alone, which was designed to reflect the loner nature of typical biker culture. In that way, the game's world and characterization would be unified, and doing so would lead to consistency across the entirety of the playing experience. Now, that's not to say that certain inspirations weren't taken from other post-apocalyptic settings, most notably the Mad Max series, which was itself about traversing desolate landmasses and fighting people who would otherwise want to beat the snot out of you. But despite that inspiration, the game setting was not actually an irradiated wasteland. It was just a lonely countryside in an alternate reality. Continuing to dive into the core concepts and story elements of the game, I want to relay one particularly interesting anecdote I read while researching information for this episode, which speaks to the iterative nature of game design and the fact that some ideas hit the cutting room floor, so to speak, before being implemented in a game. One of the sequences in the original game design called for the main character, Ben, to go on a hallucinogenic trip that introduced all sorts of reality-bending situations. On paper, Schaefer and his team thought this sounded like a good idea. But LucasArts' leadership was not so supportive. And in fact, Schaefer indicated that they absolutely hated the idea, and it actually caused them to question why they were paying Schaefer to work on the title. In Schaefer's words, they couldn't believe they had paid him to write this. That seems pretty harsh, but it did have an effect on the game, as that sequence was eventually removed prior to release. Interestingly, though, the whole concept of a hallucinogen-induced sequence became the basis for one of Schaefer's future and incredibly popular games, Psychonauts, which is proof that even if an idea might not work in the moment, you never know what the future might hold. Anyway, the game now had an art aesthetic, and it had the core framework for its story, albeit with 100% less hallucinogens than Schaefer originally had planned. Now, the team had to work on the rest of the game, with the focus of making the entire experience be a triple-A production. LucasArts, the company, and I'm talking about the broader LucasArts at this point, including their film division, which was often known for the quality of the products they created. I know many may argue that certain movie releases are better than others, but generally speaking, if LucasArts went out and did something, it was going to have a certain degree of polish, whether that's a film, a game, or special effects through Industrial Lights and Magic, which is a LucasArts-owned company that specializes in industry-leading special effects for all sorts of films. In George Lucas's words, he wasn't in the business of making B-level movies, so LucasArts, by extension, shouldn't be in the business of making B-level games. Schaefer took this overarching direction, along with a fairly significant $1.5 million budget, and began applying it to the entire production. Recall that in the earlier 90s, the proliferation of CD-ROM technology allowed for games to make dramatic advances in how they delivered their experiences, both in terms of graphical capability as well as audio. Before CD-ROM technology became prevalent, most games used synthesis-based music, as we've discussed in prior episodes, and text-based interaction and dialogue. Full Throttle, however, was designed from the ground up to be a CD-ROM title, and Schaefer intended to fully utilize the technology available to him. It was decided early on that every character in the game would be voiced by real people, but in another way that LucasArts deviated from the norm, Full Throttle would use voice actors who were all registered as part of the Screen Actors Guild, or SAG. Put another way, Full Throttle was one of the first computer games whose voice actors were all truly professionals. That's not to say that other games didn't use professional voice talent, because LucasArts did in fact use professional voice actors in prior titles. But generally speaking, 
other games made before Full Throttle used a mix of in-house talent and actual accredited actors. For LucasArts games, that wasn't a bad thing, as they always had an eye on high quality and would often have in-house actors that were able to deliver their lines with a certain degree of expertise. Other companies, though, were not always as successful or consistent. But regardless, Full Throttle would mark a departure for LucasArts in how they cast the game. This brings us to another anecdotal story relayed by Schaefer in a previous interview, related to the casting of Rory Conrad as the title character Ben. Schaefer recalled that LucasArts had received a ton of audition tapes for Ben, most of which were over-the-top representations of macho, tough-guy cliches. Rory Conrad, however, presented a different take, focused on a much more realistic, no-nonsense approach to the character. After Schaefer heard his audition, he was nearly immediately hired, and many people believe that one of the reasons Full Throttle is so widely loved has to do with Conrad's portrayal of Ben. Sadly, Roy Conrad died of lung cancer in 2002, but his performance will always live on. Turning our attention to music, this was another area that Schaefer took advantage of the CD's spacious storage, utilizing a fully instrumental set of songs to accompany the gameplay, composed by Peter McConnell, who was one of LucasArts' in-house talented musicians and is someone we've spoken about before in prior episodes of the podcast. The fact that Full Throttle would use real, recorded music for background tracks is one thing. What differed even more from prior efforts, though, was the fact that LucasArts licensed music from a band for use in the game. This was the first time LucasArts would pursue a licensing deal like this, which in and of itself makes Full Throttle unique amongst the LucasArts adventure game catalog. That band, whose name was The Gone Jackals, ended up providing both the theme music as well as a couple of other tracks for the title. And somewhat related to this, I have to relay yet another interesting story that Schaefer discussed in a prior interview. As we talked about earlier, biker culture has a certain mythos attached to it, and learning from someone who actually is a part of that culture could be a huge boon to anyone attempting to recreate that experience for the layperson. The Gone Jackals were affirmatively a part of biker culture, and Schaefer was able to use that fact for the betterment of the game. One quote I found particularly interesting, and this is directly from Schaefer himself. Schaefer said, Keith Karloff, the band's founder and frontman, rode up on his Harley and handed the tapes to composer Peter McConnell, and that was it. He knew the culture, he knew the sound, and he knew a bunch of biker guys. We'd meet his friends and tape microphones to their motorcycles and ride them around town. Now, I thought this was absolutely awesome. The fact that Schaefer and team were able to create a relationship with a band that had direct inroads into biker culture ended up being hugely beneficial for creating an experience that would truly evoke the feelings of being a hog-riding hero with a loner disposition and a tough guy demeanor. And it's not hard to see how this would end up having a direct impact on the quality of the title. A great deal of effort was placed on ensuring an amazing audio experience, but similar efforts were put in place to provide a graphical tour de force, as well as an improved interface for players to interact with the game world. Before we talk specifics, though, it warrants mentioning that Full Throttle is a scum-based game, just like the rest of LucasArts' adventure games around this time. But, rather than simply evolve the scum engine with a couple of new features or a different verb interface which other LucasArts titles had been doing since the engine's first release years prior. The team behind Full Throttle took it a step further. For one, 
they continued to use a streamlined version of the overall interface, moving away from the verb and object-based interactions of prior titles and adopting a more Sam and Max-like interface for navigating the game world. This allowed several benefits, the most important of which was the fact that more of the game world was able to be viewed on every screen, rather than having the bottom third of the screen monopolized by a list of verbs and your current inventory. Going even further, the team introduced a brand new mechanism for interacting with the world, whereby holding down the left mouse button would cause an interaction wheel to appear, allowing the player to select what action they wanted to perform, such as use, talk, look, or whatever else. All actions were depicted graphically on the screen, with the wheel of actions being positioned using skull-based imagery. Interestingly, Full Throttle doesn't get enough credit for this interface innovation. As you may be aware, The Curse of Monkey Island, which is the third game in the Monkey Island series, employed a similar interface, and it was from that game that the concept of the quote-unquote verb wheel became synonymous with future adventure titles. But this new interface actually originated with Full Throttle. Schaefer asserts, jokingly, that this method of interaction should have been referred to as a verb skull rather than a verb wheel for future titles. But I guess Monkey Island won that historical battle. Returning our attention to Full Throttle's graphics, we've already spoken a bit about the general artistic style of the game, but we haven't yet talked about some of the graphical advances that Full Throttle would implement. Unlike prior LucasArts adventures, Full Throttle used not only the SCUM engine for navigation and puzzle solving, but also integrated the Insane engine for use of 3D graphics-based full-motion video, along with general graphics and animations for other 3D interactive sections of the game. While we've talked a lot about the SCUM engine previously, this is the first we're touching upon the Insane engine. Or at least, I think it's the first time we're actually mentioning the Insane engine, which is an acronym for Interactive Streaming Animation Engine. The Insane Engine was first used with Star Wars Rebel Assault, which is a game we discussed all the way back in Episode 4, and its capabilities allowed photorealistic animations and actual acted full motion video to be played within the game. Tangentially, when I first saw Rebel Assault playing on a computer monitor at my local Radio Shack, I thought I had seen the future. Beyond the full motion video sequences, every aspect of the game, which was just pretty much an on-rail shooter, looked real. It felt like you were living a Star Wars movie. Tangent aside, the Insane Engine would also be used for full throttle, but interestingly, it was not an easy fit, because that engine wasn't really designed for cartoon-based graphics. It was really intended for actual filmed footage. A fair amount of work had to be completed to integrate full throttle's graphical style, but those efforts eventually paid off, as the game was able to play animated graphical cutscenes and also integrate 3D gameplay elements into certain sections of the game, most notably allowing players to control Ben on his motorcycle during riding and on-bike combat sequences, which, by the way, did not reverse the trend of adventure game combat systems being wonky and not really ideal for the genre. I'm going to touch more on that in a little bit. Regardless, the graphical capability of the engine was truly powerful, and it helped to create an even more evocative experience than what traditional scum-based games would allow. With all elements of the game finally coming together, Full Throttle would eventually release on April 30th, 1995, and it was time to see if Tim Schafer's efforts would pay off. Could Full Throttle outperform LucasArts' expectations and become a huge commercial success? Well, it turns out, Shaver's new game set a record for LucasArts game sales up to that point. Earlier, 
I had mentioned that a typical LucasArts Adventure title would sell around 100,000 units upon release. Full Throttle, by contrast, sold 1 million copies, which is the first time a LucasArts game based solely on an original property would cross that threshold. By any standards, that would be a huge success for the time period in which the game was released. By LucasArts standards, though, this was a phenomenal success, and one that would prove Tim Schafer was a game designer that could be trusted to lead a project by himself and deliver a product that would resonate with a population outside of the traditional point-and-click adventure game community. The success of the game can be chalked up to a couple of different factors. For one, and we've already talked about this, the production quality of the game was impeccable, with a digital audio soundtrack, licensed music, and cutting-edge animations and graphics, coupled with a more mature story with a central motif that could appeal to a broad audience, that being biker culture. Another aspect of the game's success, and one we haven't touched upon yet, is its puzzle design and overall game length. Full Throttle is, to put it bluntly, not nearly as long as the typical LucasArts adventure game. I alluded to this earlier, but the core adventure game demographic does not mind spending tens of hours on a game, even if that means just working through puzzle solutions. The general game-playing population, however, requires a bit more for the time they invest, and Schaefer was able to appeal to this demographic by tightening up both the narrative structure of the game as well as creating puzzles that are, generally speaking, not nearly as difficult as most adventure games of the time. This improved the pacing of the title dramatically, and was likely one of the main reasons why the game reached such a broad audience. While there are some reviewers who felt that the game suffered because of its relatively short playtime, most reviews were positive, and the game was widely considered to be yet another quality release by LucasArts. As with any successful endeavor, the question arose as to what to do next, and invariably that meant pursuing the potential for sequels. There were multiple attempts to create a sequel to Full Throttle several years after the original's release, both in traditional adventure game format, as well as an attempt to create a more action-adventure hybrid for home console systems. These sequels, whether fortunately or unfortunately, never came to be, and even in instances where a fair portion of the games were completed, LucasArts decided to cancel their development. This was caused by a couple of different reasons, one being the fact that Schaefer, the creative genius behind the first title, had left LucasArts by the time they decided to pursue making a sequel. The other, and ultimately more far-reaching reason, is that it was right around this time that the adventure game genre had taken a nosedive in popularity, driving many people to declare the genre as dead. This, of course, was a gross exaggeration, but it was certainly a darker time for adventure game lovers. The story doesn't end there, though. As has been the case with multiple classic adventure games in recent years, Full Throttle was eventually remastered by Tim Schafer's new company, Double Fine Productions, and was updated to have more detailed visuals, improved audio and control schemes, and a developer commentary track that provided insights into the creation of the game. As is typical with other Double Fine remasters, players can mix and match different classic and new elements to create a style unique to that player's desire such as using new graphics with old audio or old graphics with the new and improved interface. In an interview discussing the remaster, Schaefer explained that this was a perfect opportunity to remaster the classic game and that the length of the title was actually more in line with current adventure games, which meant that it was, funnily, a better fit for today's adventure game market than it was back when it was originally released in 1995. 
While I didn't find any sales figures, the fact that it was released on a ton of different platforms certainly allowed it a broad reach. And having played the game previously on my iPad, I can say that it retains the charm and quality of the original game, regardless of the platform on which it is played. Undeniably, Full Throttle was yet another success in Tim Schafer's already prestigious resume, and would enhance the legacy of both LucasArts as an adventure game company, as well as Schafer himself. Full Throttle proved that Schaefer could carry a title as the lead, and would pave the way for future successes, including returning to one of the ideas he had originally pitched along with Full Throttle's original concept, that being a game focused on the Day of the Dead, or Dia de los Muertos. That discussion, however, will have to wait for another day. While Full Throttle may have been a one-and-done experience as opposed to the start of a new adventure game series, that in no way diminishes its significance. Full Throttle's appeal transcended its origins and would, more than nearly any other LucasArts adventure, reach a broader population of gamers who may never have experienced a point-and-click title before. In the process, it would become revered by countless members of the gaming community, so much so that it remains a cherished classic on many gamers' best adventures of all time list, even today. We are now going to shift to start talking about what it feels like to play Full Throttle today versus when it was released almost 30 years ago. Like we talked about, Full Throttle is a LucasArts point-and-click adventure title, which means one thing. As with most LucasArts adventures, it is a scum engine game. Before we talk about how it implements and enhances the venerable scum engine, let's talk a bit about the overall structure of the game. Like many point-and-click adventure titles, your main focus is to explore a number of environments, interact with characters, pick up objects from the game world, and utilize those objects to make something happen, oftentimes through using those objects with hotspots scattered about each area, or in some instances, giving those items to other non-player characters. In many ways, Full Throttle is a traditional adventure game experience, in that you solve puzzles, talk with different characters via a dialogue tree system, and examine pretty much everything you come across. There are some ways that it differs from that traditional experience, though. For one, like several other LucasArts adventures, Full Throttle does occasionally throw an arcade sequence at you, one of which involves you riding along an old road looking for a fight, road rash style, while another has you behind the wheel of a car participating in a demolition derby. Both of these activities, by the way, fit perfectly within the context of the game, as I can completely imagine in my head the stereotypical biker taking part in these kinds of activities. These arcade sequences required modifications to not just the scum engine, but also involved enhancements to the insane engine like we were talking about earlier. More specifically, the road fighting sequences are directly analogous to the on-rail ship navigation sequences from Rebel Assault, though they are a heck of a lot prettier than that game. Anyway, We've talked before about adventure games attempting to add more arcade action elements as a mechanic, and I usually am of the opinion that these sequences just don't work in the typical adventure game, primarily because adventure game engines are generally not built for action. 
They're built to facilitate slower-paced pointing and clicking. And, well, full throttle is not going to change my opinion on that one. While I thought the arcade sequences were completely appropriate contextually, I feel like their execution left a lot to be desired. The Road Rash-styled riding and fighting sequences are based on the concept of needing to acquire certain weapons, in order, so that you could defeat some other more difficult bikers that you'll eventually face. As an example, you might be able to beat one biker with just your tire iron, which you'll start the sequences with. That might allow you to pick up a chain, and that chain might allow you to beat another biker, which then gives you the next item you need to attack a subsequent biker, and so on. The issue is, you encounter the bikers randomly. There is little indication of which weapon to use in each situation, and in some circumstances, you may lose a weapon you already picked up, forcing you to replay some fights over again as you figure out the appropriate combination of weapons to progress further into the game. This is, in some ways, analogous to the insult sword fighting mechanic from The Secret of Monkey Island, the only difference being, Full Throttle doesn't really give you much in the way of hints to help you figure out which weapon to use when, while in Monkey Island, the writing is clever enough that you should be able to pick up the insult pairs that go together without too much difficulty, and you'll likely get a chuckle out of them along the way. If the writing and fight sequence was only concerned with matching the right weapon to the right enemy, that would be one thing. But you also have to maneuver your bike and actually hit your enemy with the weapon by clicking your mouse. Let me tell you, these controls are a bit finicky. And unless you know which weapon to use in a given situation, you may reach a point where you assume the game is broken. There were a couple of times where I hit a given enemy 30 times, dodging and weaving to avoid their swings, yet they just wouldn't go down. Of course, I would then mess up for one split second, and a single swing knocked me to the ground. In any normal situation, pummeling your enemy multiple times should result in a win, but in this instance, unless you're using the right weapon, nothing will happen. The issue as I see it, and why I believe this mechanic is much worse than insult sword fighting, is that there are elements of gameplay, namely the active swinging of your weapon, that suggest skilled gameplay might overcome an incorrect weapon choice. In reality, it doesn't, so there's really no reason to have the sequences play out as drawn out as they do. If the only requirement is to match the right weapon to the right enemy, then the game should have been simplified to just require that selection, and nix the arcade-styled controls and gameplay entirely, at least in my opinion. The second arcade sequence later in the game involves you controlling a car in a demolition derby, and here once again, the controls and mechanics are not that great. You can eventually get used to the controls, and if you randomly decide to explore every object in the environment and use them effectively, you may figure out how to actually proceed. And yes, I'm being intentionally vague here so as to not spoil the quote-unquote solution to the sequence. But here, once again, the fact that you have arcade controls and the ability to ram into other cars is meaningless because it's not like you can do a certain amount of damage to your enemies in order to put them out of commission you have to do a very specific action while avoiding other enemies in order to actually solve the puzzle. So, why make the sequence an arcade sequence anyway? It is just unnecessary. Now, some people might say it was to add variety to the gameplay, which might be true. More likely, from my perspective, is that it was done to essentially pad out the game a little bit, because like I mentioned before, Full Throttle is a relatively short game, especially in comparison to other point-and-click adventures from the time. 
I'll talk about my opinion of the game's length in a little bit, but from my perspective, no matter how short the game is, I don't really see the need for these somewhat frustrating, difficult-to-control arcade sequences being included. Oh, and by the way, let's say you're trying to play the game on a touchscreen, say by using the remastered edition. Well, good luck, because the arcade sequence controls for the Destruction Derby are almost entirely broken. Not just cumbersome, legitimately almost broken. Anyway, moving past those arcade sequences, which, as you can tell, I have some strong opinions about. The rest of the game is a pretty traditional adventure title, but like I mentioned, it nicely evolves the scum engine to utilize a verb reel of sorts, designed as the shape of a skull. With any object in the game world, you can look at it, talk to it, punch it, or kick it, representing a significant streamlining of the interface in comparison to older scum engine games. With that streamlining came a bit of a simplification in the types of puzzles that you might encounter, and that simplification even extended to your inventory, the number of items you'll have on hand at any point in time, and the overall interactions you can have with the game world. As an example, despite having an inventory, there are no inventory combination puzzles in the game, which by itself is totally fine. There are also, however, no solutions where you'll have more than a handful of inventory items available to use at any given time, and you'll often have only several screens that you may be able to access in any given sequence. What this all means is that puzzles will often seem much easier than other adventure titles, and even if you had no clue what to do, the act of brute-forcing a puzzle solution is dramatically easier here than what it would have been in other adventure titles. At this point, you might be thinking to yourself, Jeez, he's being kind of harsh here. And yes, I kind of am. The only reason for that, though, is because I wanted to get most of my critiques out of the way up front. Because, spoiler alert, the rest of the game absolutely freaking rules. Before we get to that, though, I do want to take a look at the back of the box. Because, as you all know, I love looking at the back of the box. I love learning about how different companies marketed their titles, what kinds of things they would include in the box, because a lot of times our buying decisions were based on what the box looked like and what the back of the box said. We didn't have the internet with gameplay videos. We did, or at least around this point, have access to a fair number of reviews and magazines and things like that. But a lot of times, even with that, our buying decision was done in the store as we were looking at the box. So for Full Throttle, whose overall box, by the way, is absolutely awesome, the back of the box says, Motorcycles, mayhem, murder. One minute you're on the road riding, not a care in the world. Then some guy in a suit comes along, says he's got a deal for you and your gang. But when you come to, you've got a lump on your head, the law on your back, and a feeling in your gut that the road you're on is about to get a lot rougher. Beat up, busted, mad. Ben's been double-crossed before, but this time they messed with his gang, they trashed his bike, and they're about to come back for more. Chainsaws, tire irons, semi-trucks. Everything's coming after Ben at once. Trouble's riding his back so tight it makes the leather squeak. He's got to outfight it, outsmart it, and outrun it if he wants to survive. Suits, cops, minivans. The society that cast him out long ago wants him back, dead or alive. A faceless legal system wants Ben for murder. A greedy executive wants him for money. A mysterious woman wants him for revenge. 
what they're all going to get is up to you. Blow your mind with butt-kicking graphics, brutal puzzles, and a head-on collision of action and adventure. Blow your speakers with movie-quality sound and a full digital score featuring the Gone Jackals, an authentic, hard-hammering biker band. Blow your money on another game or kickstart your computer and go full throttle. And of course, there are a bunch of images on the back of the box, which all look absolutely awesome in their cartoon glory. And there is a call out that says special guest star Mark Hamill, who played the role of Ripburger in the in the game. So I've got to say this box. Oh, this box sold me. I loved this box. It was it's also an oversized box, by the way, which is awesome. I own this box. I bought the box. I bought the game when it originally came out. And I just remember thinking this is one of the coolest looking computer game boxes I have. The art, the style, the words. This is probably one of my favorite boxes that we've looked at. It just screams what the game is all about. And it makes you want to play it. With that out of the way, let's move on to talking about the more specific aspects of the game, and we're going to start by talking about the graphics. The graphics in Full Throttle represent the pinnacle of LucasArts cartoon-style design, with vibrant colors, well-designed characters and environments, incredible animation, and evocative cutscenes with even more advanced graphics on display. The whole world and characters have almost a painterly kind of style, and it wouldn't surprise me in the least if there were individuals who have commissioned artwork from the game to display in their homes. It is that good. The game does a decent job of telegraphing which items are able to be interacted with in the game world, though I did find at least one instance where the item I needed to proceed with the game was a bit too blended in with the background environment, at least from my perspective. Otherwise, I have zero complaints about the graphics or the animation or pretty much anything else with the visual elements of the game. I think they fit the game perfectly, are expertly designed, and remain beautiful to look at even today. Moving on to the sound and music, I cannot say enough good things about the sound and music in the game. Every track, whether those composed as background music by Peter McConnell or those that take a more front and center position as performed by the Gone Jackals, is stellar. This is the kind of soundtrack that I would listen to while I'm not playing the game, and it almost feels like perfect road trip music, assuming you're driving alone down a lonely stretch of highway. The music is pretty much perfect, and that is not hyperbole. The voice acting similarly is excellent, with Mark Hamill voicing the evil Rip Burger, Roy Conrad providing the voice of your character Ben, and a slew of other actors adding their voice talents to the game. In almost all instances, the voice work was perfect, though I will say there were at least one or two instances where the voices veered a bit too far into caricature territory. I don't think this was a major thing, as despite Full Throttle being a more serious LucasArts story, there was still some nice comedy laced throughout the game, and like I said, the voice work was stellar regardless. But I felt like I should mention it just the same. Bottom line though, the music voice work, and sound effects in the game are all excellent, and I highly recommend playing with the volume turned up to truly experience and enjoy all that the game has to offer from an auditory perspective. Moving on to the narrative and story, 
You play as Ben Throttle, the leader of the Polecats, a biker gang whose culture is threatened when they hear that the motorcycle brand they all know and love, Corley Motors, might be turning over a new leaf and shifting their manufacturing to more family-friendly vehicle options. However, not everyone at Corley Motors believes that that's the right path forward. And specifically, the company's founder and owner, Malcolm Corley, believes in biker culture and is proud of the work his company has performed in keeping bikers supplied with high-quality motorcycles. His second-in-command, Adrian Ripberger, has other ideas for the future of Corley Motors, but those ideas can only be put into motion if he's able to somehow circumvent Corley's control of the company. Needless to say, a number of different events follow, including betrayals, false accusations, hidden identities, a search for a supposed criminal, and finally, redemption, as Ben attempts to secure a future for both himself and his gang, all the while hopefully ensuring that Corley Motors' heritage and legacy remains in place for future bikers to admire and enjoy. I've got to say, this story was awesome, and it was much more directed and focused than the majority of adventure games made around this time. Full Throttle was about as close as you'd get to an adventure game movie. The story was brisk, there was very little, if any, unnecessary filler, at least from a narrative perspective, and because the puzzle elements in the game were simple, the pace of gameplay was pretty darn quick. It all felt very breezy, though the story, while straightforward, was still deep enough to hold my attention from beginning to end. I have zero complaints about the narrative in the game, and I would legitimately read a book or watch a movie based on full throttle. That's how much I believed the story in this game absolutely rocked. Moving on to the playability and controls, there's not a ton to talk about related to the controls in the game, because for the most part, they follow traditional point-and-click gameplay mechanics, with every single interaction with the game world, inventory items, other characters, and pretty much everything else using a purely mouse-driven interface. Because the Scum engine at this point had moved away from text-verb commands to a more graphical style, this is one of those LucasArts adventure titles that feels modern to play, despite being released in 1995. From a playability perspective... Full Throttle is a nearly perfect adventure game experience, with a streamlined interface, an engaging story, and well-designed, oftentimes logical puzzles. If I were to levy a complaint about the game's puzzles, it's that they might be just a bit too logical, which I recognize is an odd complaint to have. It's kind of strange, because in some adventure games, the puzzles are so oddly designed that you can't possibly figure out what the designer was thinking, and in those instances, fun plummets. In other instances, like Full Throttle, the puzzles are designed in a way that mimics the real world. As an example, if you need to siphon off some gasoline in real life, you'd expect to use a hose and a gas can, and you do the exact same thing in Full Throttle. But because that interaction is a purely logical thing, it means that there isn't a ton of lateral thinking required to solve the game's puzzles, which makes it easier for newer adventure players to actually enjoy the game, but can be seen as too easy by adventure gamers who have played a ton of point-and-click titles. There is definitely a happy medium here, and the best of the best adventure games strike a good balance between game logic and real-world logic. Full Throttle doesn't quite hit that balance, but honestly, I would rather a game be too logical as opposed to too obscure in its puzzle design, so I'm actually supportive of Full Throttle's approach in this regard. What I'm less supportive of is the inclusion of those action sequences I mentioned earlier. While cool in theory, 
these sequences did detract from my enjoyment of the game a bit, as I didn't think they were really necessary. If the game had employed more traditional adventure mechanics, albeit with the same scenarios, I think it would have been a much better decision. I commend the development team for their effort in trying something unique, but as with nearly all adventure game titles, the better approach would have been to do what the genre does best, which is simply point and click. I love action games, but adventure game engines so rarely do action sequences justice that it's ultimately better to avoid them entirely. I can't think of a single adventure game that was enhanced by including an action sequence, though if anyone listening has an alternate perspective, definitely let me know. Otherwise, though, Full Throttle is an engaging, fun experience that remains as playable today as it ever was. Overall, what do we think about Full Throttle? Well, honestly, Full Throttle felt great to play and was probably one of the most brisk adventure titles I have played in years. I loved the combination of the story, voice acting, graphics, and traditional point-and-click gameplay. And like I mentioned earlier, this is pretty much as close to an adventure game movie as you're going to get. So many adventure titles involve large, world-spanning quests with events that impact large portions of the population, and in some instances, the entire world. Full Throttle is not one of those adventures. It tells a much more intimate tale focused on very specific character-driven motivations. And with that focus comes a design structure that removes nearly all of the fluff that other titles typically include. Sure, that means that Full Throttle is one of the shorter adventure titles LucasArts developed. But, and this is a perspective I've always had, if the quality of the experience is stellar, does that length really matter? I would rather play several hours of awesomeness over 20 hours of mediocrity, despite the cost. And Full Throttle, most assuredly, is an awesome experience. So what is our verdict on Full Throttle? Well, I will say, Full Throttle is not a perfect game, and it does contain some sequences that I feel should have been designed differently. With that said, The vast majority of the game is a simple joy to play, and it holds up incredibly well under today's scrutiny. This is a title that I believe nearly anyone can pick up, play, and enjoy, whether you've played adventure games previously or not. And from my perspective, that's exactly what you should do, because Full Throttle absolutely deserves a spot in our pantheon of classic gaming. It is not the best adventure game ever made, and admittedly, there are some frustrating design elements. But I truly believe this is a game that everyone should experience at some point in their lives, even if only to see what an ultra-talented group of people can do when given the opportunity to create something that they truly believe in. Full Throttle is that experience, and there's a reason why so many gamers fondly remember it. It is a quintessential adventure game experience, and as such, very clearly belongs as the newest member of our pantheon of classic gaming.
That was our episode on Full Throttle. I hope you all enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed creating it. If you'd like to reach out, let me know how I'm doing, provide feedback, comments, suggestions, or just talk about classic games and technology in general. I would love to hear from you, and there are a few ways you can reach out. I have an X account with the handle at ClassicGamingT. I have an email address, which is ClassicGamingToday at gmail.com. And I have a Discord server. The link is in the show notes. Discord is the best way to get in touch with me and the rest of the community around this podcast. We have a ton of fun out on Discord. I do highly encourage you all to check it out. I also encourage you to check out our Patreon. It is patreon.com slash classicgamingtoday. So if you want even more Classic Gaming Today goodness, patreon.com slash classicgamingtoday is where it's at. Before we sign off for the week, I do want to mention that our next episode is going to be focused on Mega Man 2, which is another Patreon-sponsored episode, this one being sponsored by Dave Morton. So if anybody has any particularly fond or not-so-fond memories of playing Mega Man 2, feel free to write in and let me know. At the same time, I recognize that you're likely listening to this podcast on any number of podcast services. And if you would feel so inclined, it would be great if you could leave me a review. This is not about bolstering star counts. This is not about trying to harvest a ton of five-star ratings, though if that happens, awesome, it means we're doing something right. No, what it's really all about is trying to create the best possible podcast I can. The only way to do that is to get feedback from all of you about what's working, what isn't, and what we can do to continue to make this an awesome experience. We get new listeners every single day, which is amazing. I truly want to make sure that I can deliver the best possible podcast that I can. We'll be back in around a week with our next episode focused on Mega Man 2. Until then, remember, sometimes the games of the past are just as good, if not better, than the games of today. Goodbye, everyone. <laughs>